Hello and welcome to Plot Trist. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Lord of Darkness by Elizabeth Hoyt. This was published in 2013 and is the fifth book in the Maiden Lane series. We're gonna do it. I have two immediate comments. Uh One, I remain astounded at how recent this series is. Mm -hmm. Two, Lord of Darkness feels like a modern, like, pop punk young adult romance title. It does, doesn't it? And I just, like, I feel like in 2013, if her editor had any foresight, might have tweaked the title a little to seem a little less Feyre and Resan's retelling from Resan's perspective. Oh, my God. I mean, yes. I don't know. I, I will say that this specific title has always struck me as being not great. There's Thief of Shadows, which mm-hmm. is fine. And then there's also Duke of Midnight is the one that follows this one. And the hero in that one is a duke. But I'm like, Godric is not a lord. He's also not, like, of the darkness. Right. I don't know. I mean, Thief of Shadows, I guess... Winter's not a thief or anything, but I'm just like, hey, you know, Thief of Shadows, whatever. It does feel very generic. Feels fantasy esque. It feels less fantasy esque than Lord of Darkness. Do you think? Yes. Lord uh, Lord of Darkness feels extremely high fantasy. Possible. So we have reviewed the first four in this series, um, and we've re released the ones that were previously recorded. We We'll be re-releasing the ones that are subsequent to this if we have already recorded them. So if you're following along, we are on book five. Correct. Book Jacka? Yeah. When strangers in the night, he lives in the shadows as the mysterious masked Avenger known as the ghost of St. Giles, Godric Sinjin's only goal is to protect the innocent of London until the night he confronts a fearless young lady pointing a pistol at his head and realizes she is his wife. Become lovers. Lady Margaret Redding has vowed to kill the ghost of St. Giles, the man who murdered her one true love. Returning to London and the man she hasn't seen since their wedding day, Margaret does not recognize the man behind the mask. Fierce, commanding, and dangerous. The notorious ghost of St. Giles is everything she feared he would be. And so much more. Desire is the ultimate danger. When passion flares, these two intimate strangers can't keep from revealing more of themselves than they had ever planned. But when Margaret learns the truth, that the ghost is her husband, the game is up. And the players must surrender to the temptation that could destroy them both. This is just not great, I don't think. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty representative of the book. (laughs) So not great, is that what you're saying? (laughs) A little bit. It's like, the okay, a couple of things are annoying me about this book jacket. Great. Number one is the the three headings for the paragraphs. A lot of times, I mean, they're supposed to make up one sentence, but this sentence is the shittiest sentence. When strangers in the night become lovers, date. When strangers in the night become lovers, desire is the ultimate danger. Huh? Okay. Um, where's the lie? 
<laughs> it makes no sense. Okay, number one, that's stupid. Number two, they call her Margaret the entire time. And she, she hates her, the name Margaret. She goes by Megs. The first time, okay, fine, Lady Margaret Redding, which also is not her name. Her name is now Sinjin. Sinjin? John? Lady Margaret Sinjin. So, anyway, so it's incorrect. But, like, just change it later. I don't care if you call her Lady Margaret Redding. She can be like, oh, yeah, she's the one in the first book. But we're probably going to forget that anyway. Right. (sighs) I don't know. It's fine. Like, it's fine. Meg's name is Margaret, so she's taking this personally. Well, I mean, like, yeah, you know. (laughs) I get it. I get it. As someone who gets my name butchered on the regular, I get it. Well, anyway, I don't care if people call me Margaret, but if they call me Margaret, I know that they're not, like, my friend. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, they don't know me, which is is fine. Like, I don't care if you're going to call me Margaret. That is my name. But this happens in the book, too. She's like, don't call me Margaret call me Megs. And after that, he's like, oh, I guess I better call her Megs. Fine. But like, do it on the book jacket too. I feel you. Thank you. All right. Random number? Yeah. So as usual, we generated a random number between 1 and 50 and wrote our own summaries using that number as a word count. And this week, the number was 45, which obviously, because Meg and I both were writing our summaries immediately before recording, and you know if we procrastinate, the number is going to be high. <laughs> you know that's what happens. <laughs> Invariably. You know, I did this like three weeks early, but... <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, I'll go first. So my 45-word summary. The premise. We're already married, so put a baby in me. The sex point. 42%. The point when the sex stops being awkward. Never. This felt like the continuation of Thief of Shadows that I didn't even know was a cliffhanger. They end up together? It's all fair. You know, it, it, this is the continuation of Thief of Shadows that no one ever asked for. I will delve into that in more detail later. But, like, in all reality, yes, that is the biggest problem with this book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right, well, here is my 45-word summary. Megs and Godric have nothing in common except for the deep, abiding grief for their former loves. Well, kind of abiding because two years later, she's got baby fever and he's so attracted to her, he uses dick logic to convince himself they have to bone. I love that. I love that all so much. Like, sarcastically, obviously. (laughs) Where she's like, okay, here's the thing. I never want to cheat on my one true love. But he was a joyful person who would have wanted me to have the joy of having a baby. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I can fuck other dudes if my goal is just to get pregnant. Yeah, but right. I can't have feelings or that's a betrayal. I can't have feelings or even like an orgasm. And, right. Enjoy it. I can't. It has to be just for the purposes of putting a baby in me that is not your baby, but I can imagine is your baby. TM. And he's totally like, I don't want to betray my true love's memory either. So first, he's like, I'm not, we're not having sex. Like, it's not happening. I'm going to stay true to my dead wife forever. I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. But pretty soon after that, he's like, oh, I actually think she's kind of hot and I kind of want to have sex with her. And she says she wants a baby and I want her out of my house. So if I give her a baby, she'll leave. And I was like, this is thinking with your dick, man. 
sub point because everything you just said was accurate. You're inferring all of that. All of the important things, you're not in his perspective. So this book alternates between the two of their perspective, but you're not in his head when he decides that he's going to have sex with her. No, you are. You are. He's like, he's like, I need her out of my house. How can I get her out of my house? He's oh. thinking, I'm jealous. Why am I upset? Why do I want to do this? But you never listen to him or read his perspective, like rationalizing the betrayal that it would be to Clara or any of that other stuff. It's not just the betrayal. A... No, but he, okay. does, he does think I want her gone. How do I get her gone? Put a baby in her. Okay. But he doesn't like articulate his complicated thoughts about having sex with her and putting a baby in her. Not complicated thoughts. No. Right. Right. He, okay. So she jumps his bones. She just tries to jump his bones. Correct. And he's like, no, get off of me. And he's like, I'm Vile harlot filled with cooties. <laughs> he's like, I'm staying faithful to Clara. And then he leaves. And then he does think, man, it was harder than she even realized, pun intended, because she's actually really hot and I do kind of want to fuck her and I feel kind of bad about it. But that's as close as you get to his internal conflict. Correct. Okay, there we go. Done. Okay, no, we agree. My point is, I feel like there's a lot of emotional depth that you're left to infer. Oh, yes. Uh, you know what? I do agree with you on that because like, eh, okay, we're, I have a lot to to say about this book that I didn't think I had a lot to say about. Following our summaries, I know we touched on some of the tropes, but what other tropes are in this book, Meg? Well, let's see. They have a marriage of convenience, obviously. Like it's a not not just marriage of convenience. What's the word I'm looking for? Blackmail. <laughs> I mean, no, it's the marriage where a, a white marriage, mariage blanc. Apparently, I know how to say it in French. It's a, you know, it's a marriage where you're like, we're going to be married, but we're going to not have sex. Cool. I feel like there's an actual word for that that I can't think of. But anyway, that's their marriage. But then he's like, I guess we have to, she's like, we have to make it real now. Yes. And in this case, both of them are currently feeling burned by mm -hmm. the death of a former love so they're both each other's second loves and yeah. there is a lot of emotional grappling with what it means to be truly in love for a second time if it sounds boring it's because it was i was so done with that plot point oh my god it was like the major theme yeah but you make a marriage bargain which is that she will leave him to in town and go back to the country when she has a baby. Well, when she's pregnant, not even when she has the baby. That's true. That's true. When she's pregnant. And there's like other parts of the bargain too. I thought it was the stupidest bargain. I thought it was the stupidest bargain. Correct. It's, he like kept adding these caveats to it like after they had agreed. And I'm like, fuck you. I hate legalistic shit like that. Well, and the worst part is she's thinking he's adding these things, fuck him. But then she's thinking, I'm distracted by the D. <laughs> and so she doesn't actually call him out on why he's being shitty. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Oh, my gosh. Let's see. Oh, he has a secret identity. Yeah, so he is one of the many ghosts of St. Giles. 
We find out in this book that there are three of them. Spoiler alert. I think we knew there were three in Winner's Book. In Winner's Book, we knew there was more than one. Right. We know there's, and we know there's Sinjin, and we know there's at least one other. Possibly. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't remember what exactly we knew in Winter's Book. Chronology is tough for me. But. I haven't read any of the ones past Winter's Book that have to do with the ghost. So, like, I'm pretty sure I knew there were three. Yeah. In this one, so, like, Winter has retired from ghosting. And... <laughs> <laughs> ghosting as a verb in this context is hilarious as a single woman in her 30s. I know. And Godric is like, he's like, so you're going to retire now that you have, now that your wife is in town. And Godric's like, uh, no. Uh. So, basically, this, it actually reminded me of, like, the guy who gets married, but he's not going to change his wicked ways. Right. Except it's about being like, vigilante. <laughs> right. And not a whore. Right. Oh, my gosh. So, I, like, kind of a twist on that trope, I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what other tropes are there? Uh, so, both of them are sort of people, like, frozen in time in this one moment. Mm-hmm. And this relationship is about like healing them past that moment for both of them. Right. And in both of their cases, it's the death of their lost love. Yep. But they are literally the bomb that like reawakens the soul of the other. I was going to say puke and Lane is like <laughs> miming, retching over here. <laughs> You can tell we're like not into this. Sorry. We're like, here's the thing. Was this book terrible? No. No. Was it inspired? No. And did it like execute a lot of tropes that I just don't like? It's not the worst possible like interpretation of said tropes I just don't like. But I'm never going to be here for put a baby in me. I'm never going to be here for, like, I am so broken, I need a man or woman to heal me. I'm never going to be here for, like, I've lost perspective on my own life and my will to live. Yes. I mean, apparently all of my metaphors are food metaphors because my metaphor for this book is that it's like a restaurant that someone suggested eating at. And I was like, okay, I'll try out this restaurant. And I went to it and I, like, had some food and it was, like, fine. But I would never go back to that restaurant again. I wouldn't have bad memories about it and be like, I've got food sickness at this horrible restaurant. Right. It's like, it's, it's if somebody else suggested in the future, you'd be like, oh, you're not interested in any of those other places. And if people are like, no, we really want to go to this place, you'd go I'd again. Like, yeah. I'd be like, okay, fine. You know, I'll try something else. But it's something not else. by your own volition. No, correct. <laughs> I yeah. would never go to that restaurant like ever again. I would choose like McDonald's probably over this restaurant, you know? Because I'd be like, why spend a lot of money when I can just feed myself for free? Not for free, but for cheap. Especially if you have a cell phone. Yeah. And can use coupons and whatnot. Okay. After that tangent about McDonald's. It's about food, not McDonald's. His butler knows everything. Mm -hmm. So he's a recluse. He is like, his butler is fully the Alfred to Batman. Yes. Yes, totally. You're so right. Oh, my God. He even, like, stitches him up. The yep. butler stitches Godric up. The butler is the doctor, the accomplice, the one-man rescue operation. 
And I feel like he kind of got a short shrift because the whole point of this book is that Megs walks in and starts doing some of that stuff. But holy shit, this this butler has kept him alive. Yeah, in many ways. You're right. And then, yes, there's the love the man, but hate the alter ego. Or you put this love the man, hate the job, love the man. Like, their central conflict once they get over the whole, I'm supposed to still be in love with a dead person, is, you know, how can we be together when what you're doing is so dangerous? Yes. I want to be clear that, so the book jacket and the beginning of the book, it is true that she's in town because she wants to kill the ghost. But once she figures out it's Godric, she's like, oh, I know Godric. He he wouldn't. He's not an evil person. So very right, quickly. Second, there is no moment where she confronts him. I know you're the ghost. How could you kill my lover? It's the second she knows Godric's the ghost. She knows the ghost didn't kill her lover. Yeah. Which I, I'm going to give Elizabeth Hoyt her due. She's doing such a good job with dealing with this mask, this vigilante identity reveals in not making it the central conflict. I did struggle a little bit in this one. So she thinks the ghost killed her lover. Mm-hmm. Godric, as the ghost, obviously knows none of the ghosts killed her lover. But he does know that her lover was part of this group of friends that were involved in this operation, one of whom was killed for it. And I just felt like even a passing reference to him communicating to her about that would have been appreciated. Look, Godric, I'm going to be completely honest. They present him as being like a scholar and being all book smart and stuff. I saw no textual evidence that he was actually like heading smarts up there. Correct. I'll just say that. Yep. Um, it's been forever since we had a gentleman Jackson's get fit workout scheme for the um, vigilante. Uh, in this case, it's just being close to St. Giles. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's like parkour. Yeah. Spend the last the 10 years doing parkour in secret. Parkour and jacked. Totally, like so jacked. Can't even tell you. All right. What do we need to say about this book? So. You get the introduction to, like, the true ghostly conflict with Winter. Yes. That book ends. He's killed Seymour, who was running the Ring O. Lassie Snatchers. Lassie Snatchers. Um, you know Roger Fraser Burnsby was killed and that Meg was left alone, but you kind of got the impression in the book that killing Seymour kills, at the very least, the, like, entity behind Roger's murder. Mm-hmm. And you felt like everything was wrapped up. This book says, not so fast. Those same Lassie Snatchers with the exact same objective are back in operation. And now, because Megs has a bee in her bonnet, you have to find the exact guy who is responsible for the death of Roger. And it's, it's, it's it's very repetitive in terms of the conflict from the previous book, just minus the, like, infertility... Because, like, yeah, Winters promised himself to being the ghost, but Godric's essentially done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, Godric's decided he's on a death mission to, like, be the ghost until being the ghost kills him because he yeah. doesn't feel like he has a reason to live outside of being the ghost. Yeah, so, like, basically. The motivations are subtly different, but, like, the end result is the same. Mm-hmm. It is. It's very true. But yeah, so she shows up in town. She's got two objectives, find and kill the ghost, which I don't know why, the, whatever. 
stupid objective. And second objective is she wants a baby. Put in her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's like, I could do this out in the country with someone I don't know, but I do have a husband. I guess I could use him. His seat is mine. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just straight up don't care. I just, look, I have to say, this was especially tough for me coming on the heels of Winter and Isabel's book because Isabel suffers from infertility and this like whole thing. Like it's not that she necessarily has baby fever, but she does not have this choice. Right. Right. And then you come here and Meg's is like, she's already had one miscarriage. That was pretty bad, but she's like, whatever. And she's only like, what, 24 roundabouts. And I don't know. She's like, I want a baby. I'm like, girl, you're 24. You have I think she's so 25 because she says to her brother, I'm five years past 20. You can't trust me with your gin smuggling ring. <laughs> you're 25. I don't know. I mean, maybe baby fever had an earlier onset in the 1700s, but I mean, like 25 is not. Whatever. I don't know. Maybe. <sighs> I just couldn't relate. Let's just put it that way. Correct. Okay. I I just also found like the complete, I want a baby. I don't care who the father is. I just want it to be my husband because I don't want to put my husband in a situation mm-hmm. where he's not the father made no sense. Like it wasn't super sympathetic. It read as like kind of deranged. It's uh, that's my biggest issue with Meg's is she reads as pretty selfish. Yes. You know, she, she hasn't, she doesn't really consider other people. And And not in a fun way. Right, right, right. Uh, Like another example of her selfishness is she's decided she's going to find Roger's killer. And so she doesn't have a plan for this. She also decides that she just wants to feel close to Roger. And the way to feel close to him is by going to St. Giles, like the most dangerous slum in London and just, hanging out there because that's where he died she's gonna go commune with his spirit in st giles or something and she almost gets killed or raped twice correct so i don't know after the first like the first time fine the second time are you fucking kidding me don't do it it was she was a she was a weird character and that's also what made me feel like this was more of an age gap there is a bit of an age gap. There's about 10, 12 years difference between them. He's 37. She's 25. Yep. That's not like the greatest age gap in the world. He's not like old enough to be her father, you know. But it felt like more of an age gap than it was because she acted like she was 18 and he acted like he was 59. Correct. I just need to have a moment for acting like 37 is dead. Hurt my feelings. <laughs> How do you think I felt? <laughs> Just saying. Um, I but I, I do totally agree with you. She acted like a child mm-hmm. with no long-term thinking about the potential consequences of her actions. And he acted like he was half dead. Mm-hmm. Except in the bedroom. Which usually I'd be all here for. But I, 
I think that's my thing. I get nitpicky about characterization when I ultimately mm-hmm. feel like the characterization was inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And I definitely felt like that was the case here. Yeah. Like I felt in the previous books, I felt like Meg was, Meg's was um, privileged, but not self-centered. Sure. And that is, I, it really went towards the self-centered and privileged route in this book. Yep. So usually Elizabeth Hoyt hits you over the head with a metaphor through um, the introductory stories at the beginning of each chapter. Mm-hmm. But this time she doubled down. So not mm-hmm. only do you have a little blip of a paragraph of a story at the beginning of every chapter with an extremely unsettled metaphor about our hero and heroine, but she also incorporated it into the plot. Mm-hmm. I, I think she was going for like a Persephone Hades thing here. But um, Meg's is like, you know, renovating his manor house and blah, blah, blah. And then in the garden, there's this dead-ass tree. This tree is dead. And the gardener's like, you need to cut it down. And she's like, no, just leave it for a little while. Girl, you need to cut that tree down. If I have learned anything from living in a neighborhood that has mature trees in it, you have got to have tree people come in and cut down those trees when they're dead because they will fall on your house and you have to pay for it. That is the most middle-aged rant you have ever gotten on on this podcast. <laughs> and it's going to squish her baby when she has it. You're not even middle-aged, but, like, that was some old shit right there. <laughs> I'm channeling Godric. You're channeling Godric. Like, that tree is a hazard. That tree is such a hazard. It's going to kill someone, and it's also going to crush their house, and it's going to be really expensive. Sure, maybe Godric has a lot of money. I don't know. Seems like he does, but no one wants to spend money that you could have avoided spending. Done. Cut down that tree. <laughs> Cut down the goddamn tree. Ah, <laughs> oh. all right. Um, you want to tell me more about this cliffhanger, fake cliffhanger? I just, I think it's worth reiterating that there was no cliffhanger at the end of Deep of Shadows. Yeah. I did not feel like the Lassie Snatchers storyline had not been sufficiently resolved. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I think Elizabeth Hoyt just probably ran out of ideas about like bad shit in St. Giles. Mm-hmm. Like she's already done Ginger Stiller. She's got Lassie Snatchers here. Like I think she just was like, all right, what's another threat to St. Giles that will impact both the foundling home and Godric personally? More Lassie Snatchers. Let's tie it in so Megs can get vengeance. It just, it didn't feel necessary following the conclusion of the previous book at all. I was like, really? This is the plot of this book again? Yeah. I don't know. At least we got to see Winter like the snatch, smidgen. And Isabel like less than a smidgen? Isabel less than a smidgen. But I don't know. I liked, I liked that. I thought she did a pretty good job of incorporating the, the previous couples. Agree. So I will say they didn't just feel like they were cameos, basically, right? I agree. Like, look at that guy and look at that guy. Like, they did actually feel like part of the plot. So I think she did a good job with that. That said, how did she do with future couples, Lane? We've commented on this that, like, with the exception, weirdly, of Winter and Isabel in the book before theirs there's not a whole lot that feels relevant when she she warns in the next couple. Artemis is the lady ma- lady's maid to a vapid, mm-hmm. self-centered mm-hmm. title lady, hunter. Lady Penelope, yeah. In their wider circle. 
Mm-hmm. And you get a ton of chapters from Artemis's perspective as the companion. And it was so irrelevant. Like, you even get introductions to Artemis's brother in prison, Apollo, who's going to be the hero of book eight. Five, six, seven. 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 Okay. It's, it's just not... It, it was total skim over. It's not that it's not important, and it's not that it won't matter in future books, but it had nothing to do with what was happening in this book. I'm going to be honest. I think she does an okay job of introducing future characters or the possibility of future characters. It's when she gets into their perspective that it's like, mm, I really don't need this. Because it's 10, 20% of the book sometimes. Yeah. And you're like, I could put all this in the garbage. Like, I don't need to read it to understand what's happening now. And if you want me to develop a connection with these characters that I'm going to remember in a future book, it's not memorable. Yeah. To have, like, these expository things happening in a B-plot. But, like, are you interested in, say, Trevelyan? Yeah. Are you interested in Lady Phoebe? Yeah, and they've never gotten perspectives up to this point. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And they, you don't need a lot. You just need a little bit to make them interesting. And then, like, you'll be ready to read their book. So, Right, like, if you had, in this book, for example... Godric or Megs overhearing the confrontation between the Duke and Artemis in the opera box. Mm-hmm. That would have been enough to set the stage for them obviously ending up together in the next book or exactly. a future book. Exactly. never does things in the order you expect, even if she did in this case. Exactly. Like, like Godric happened to be in the box and he, he left was in the it. box. That's what's hilarious. Right. But, and he left it just in time to see Artemis like running down the hall and he's like, oh shit, she ever heard, you know? Right. Exactly. So but that's all you need, honestly. Right. Uh, so I, this book was frustrating in that it wasn't like bad exposition. It was characters I was interested in, but it just takes you away from the main plot at the weirdest moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree. All right. Offensiveness? Content warnings? Uh, I mean, look, the Lassie Snatchers. Everything yeah. that goes on in St. Giles, pros- casual mentions of prostitution and like the complete failure of the legislature to protect citizens. They, yeah. they, all that's again here. It's been here all along. Yeah. I think there's also a little bit more uh, medical gore in this book than in others. Um, Winter had a little bit, like he got injured a little bit, but it, you know, it didn't seem, it wasn't like gory. And in this book, there's like a lot of blood and like, wound fever and stuff like that it's kind of a lot. correct so i also just want to say that i was offended by how many times wigs were mentioned <laughs> it was so gross right like uh gross. it did make me look up why wigs were in fashion and of course it's for horrible reasons correct right so number one is in fashion because syphilis was like a raging epidemic at the time which made you lose your hair and so a lot of people are like let's just cut off all our hair and put on wigs instead that's one reason and number two the other reason was because it's a lot easier to clean a wig to get rid of lice than it is to clean your hair and get rid of lice so you just cut off all your hair and the lice can't live on your head and then you get your wig cleaned gross also relevant here not at all sexy 
zero percent sexy and she kept describing him as having gray wig and half moon spectacles i swear to god i just kept thinking of benjamin franklin yeah there was a lot of things that in otherwise what should have been sexy moments made this book not sexy yep and i think that takes us very neatly into sexiness Mm -hmm. every sex scene was angsty sad or angry most sex scenes involved him taking off his half moon spectacles and gray wig. And I was just like, I'm, I'm good. This is not erotic. I know I get hot whenever my lover takes off his wig. The first two sex scenes, every moment that would have gotten hot, Megs was like, I don't want to be turned on. How dare you? Oh my God. It's the worst. This is not why I read you, Elizabeth White. I'll just say that. One of the sex scenes is like, I'm angry at you, so I'm going to blow you. <laughs> yep. One of the sex scenes is you're actively weeping over your dead lover, so you asked me to fuck you into sleeping, so I guess I will. <laughs> it's like, it's, they're on the page. And one of them is a, is a, say my name so I know that you know I'm the one who's fucking you. Because I can tell you're picturing your dead lover. <laughs> it was like really uncomfortable. Yeah, it wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't turned on by this book. We'll just say that. Also, the very last scene where she admits her love for him and she's like, we can have so much sex in exotic positions. And like, babe, one time you fucked your doggy style over a mattress. You can calm down. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Not the best entry into Maiden Lane. That said, also not the most offensive or the worst so far. <laughs> I just, why start here if you can start with winter? Oh. <laughs> That's the, <what>? yes. <laughs> why stop like, here when you can stop with winter? Right. Like, I just, this, this feels like a completionist entry. But I also have a hunch just based on where this one ended and the clear setup with Artemis that this one's going to be very skippable. Yeah, I, this is. Like, not terrible, but just in the narrative, like, you'd be yeah. fine to do without it. You could probably skip it. Um, this is my second time reading it, and I have read many others many more times. Just say that. So thank you guys so much for listening. We would love it if you would rate, review, subscribe, and check us out around the internet anywhere you can find Plot Trist.